When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.33, Misty of Edinburgh, Quitting the Old Harbour. I hope that you all enjoyed the movie night episode last time, and indeed the whole series on Alex of Hesse. As I said when I started her story, she and her sister Ella were the main reason why I wanted to do this whole series. The fall of the Romanovs is one of history's great epics, and I can only hope to have done it justice. But now we must move on, and boy, oh boy, do I have another woman for you. I would hazard that almost none of you have heard of Missy or Marie of Edinburgh, sometimes also called Marie of Romania. I don't blame you. I hadn't really until I started the research for the series. But that is why I absolutely love doing what I do, because it allows me to discover incredible stories and share them with all of you. I don't want to overhype her, but Missy is one of the most badass modern queens that you have never heard of a woman who dominated a kingdom, a controversial figure whose life and legacy shaped the history of the Balkans in the first half of the 20th century. Popular, beautiful and powerful, she had many enemies and detractors who have sought to sully her reputation in the decades after her death. But what is most extraordinary is her prolific surviving writings. I've relied a great deal on correspondence throughout this series, but Missy went one step further in that she did not only keep a diary and write letters, but also published an autobiography. That is pretty much the dream for historians and history podcasters, and I will be quoting liberally from it throughout this miniseries. She isn't tremendously well covered in terms of secondary sources, but she does have a biography written by Hannah Pakula, which I would heartily recommend if this series piques your interest in Missy. But before we get going with the story, I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters who keep the show on the road, and in particular my latest backers, Maggie, Ashlyn, Cassandra, Tim, Laura, Bethany, Vicky, Callie, Mandy, Paul, Laurie, Kendra, Christina, and Jenny. 
It's so great to have such a supportive community of patrons, and I'm so grateful to you all. If you would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Of all the other women that I have covered so far in this series, Missy most resembles Ella. They were both famous beauties, both found solace in a newfound faith after being widowed, and both of their lives would have been irrevocably changed had Queen Victoria got her way. Ella, of course, married a Romanov against her grandmother's wishes, while Missy would never have been born had her father not done the same thing. Prince Alfred was the second son and fourth child overall of Queen Victoria. While his brother was the heir of the British throne and empire, Alfred had the far smaller inheritance of Saxe-Coburg planned for him. He would, though, have to wait quite a while to inherit until the current duke died before taking that title, so had, for now, to be content to simply be the Duke of Edinburgh. His position in the royal family meant that whoever he married would rank as only the fourth most important woman in the family. This somewhat limited his range of choices, and meant that, when he began his career in the Royal Navy in the 1860s, he was still single. A dashing young naval officer who had survived an assassination attempt while in Australia, he was popular both with the public and within the family. In 1868, while on a family retreat in Denmark, organised by Alexandra, the Princess of Wales, and Marie, the wife of the future Tsar Alexander III, Alfred was introduced to a Romanov princess. Grand Duchess Marie. She was the daughter of Alexander II, and at 15 years old, was nine years Alfred's junior. She wasn't known as being a particular beautiful woman, but she was rich, which may have attracted Alfred more than looks. Neither Victoria nor the Tsar were particularly in favour of the match. Alexander didn't want to be parted from his only daughter, on whom he relied for a lot of secretarial work. Allowing the match would mean her departing for Britain and mean that he would rarely see her. As for Victoria, she hated Russia and the Romanovs, and had no intention of allowing one of that family to infiltrate hers. But neither of them could prevent the match. Both Alfred and Marie were strong-willed and determined to make it happen, and so they tied the knot at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg in July 1872, before returning to the UK to start their lives together. Now, Marie was not an especially popular princess. There was an immediate fight over precedence, as Marie and her relatives felt that, as an imperial highness, this meant that she should rank above the Princess of Wales. But Victoria refused, placing her behind both Alexandra and Crown Princess Vicky of Prussia. Marie reacted to this by insisting on the strictest adherence to etiquette and protocol. For example, no one was allowed to turn their back on her at any point. There is one story of a gardener having to walk backwards literally over the horizon while Marie pointedly stared, making sure he did it. She may have been stiff and proud, but she was a fierce intellect. But again, this wasn't something that especially impressed the public. Her husband, meanwhile, was growing more unpopular. 
he drank too much, spent too much, and didn't get on well with others. This all added up to a rather isolated life for both of them. They had five children together. Their firstborn was a son, helpfully called Alfred, and the rest were girls. I'll give you all four guesses to get their names. Yep, they were that unimaginative. There was, of course, Missy, the subject of this episode, and then Victoria, Alexandra, and Beatrice. Why use your imagination, eh? Marie Alexandra Victoria was born on the 29th of October, 1875. Queen Victoria was actually rather put out by her name, only coming third in the list. But in reality, she was mostly known by her nickname, Missy. She spent most of her childhood bouncing in between the family home at Clarence House in London, Eastwell Park in Kent for the shooting season, and summers with the extended family at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. She was raised in the Anglican Communion, as had been agreed in the marriage contract between her parents, but in all other aspects, her mother dominated her childhood. Unpopular at court, the Duchess of Edinburgh devoted her life to her children. Missy later wrote, quote, It was Mama who settled things, Mama to whom we turned, Mama who came to kiss us goodnight, who took us out for walks and drives. It was Mama who scolded and praised, who told us what we were or were not to do. Mama loved us passionately. Her whole life was given up to her children. We were her supreme and central interest of her existence. Marie was the complete stereotype of the Victorian parent. Strict, stern and difficult to please, Missy later wrote that, quote, She was the ruling sovereign of her household, the one who let you feel that the power over good and evil was hers. Missy was greatly intimidated by her grandmother, just like the rest of her siblings and cousins. She described feeling, quote, reverential fear whenever she was summoned to an audience to be questioned on her moral fibre and upbringing. Of her other relatives, she was most fond of Alexandra, the Princess of Wales, whose beauty and kindness swept her away. She was rather less fond of her other British relatives, finding them rather cold and indifferent to children. The Russians, on the other hand, were overbearing and rather too interested in the children, teasing them mercilessly, but also spoiling them greatly, showing off some classic Romanov largesse whenever Missy and her siblings visited St. Petersburg. When Missy was 11, her father was posted to Malta to take command of the Mediterranean fleet. While she was there, she spent a great deal of time with her cousin George, the second son of the Prince of Wales, who was 10 years her senior. George stayed with them often while he was ashore, and he and Missy wrote to each other often while he was at sea. Tongues quickly began to wag that once Missy reached maturity, they were dead certs to tie the knot. Life in Malta was free and full of leisure. Indeed, the Edinburgh girls got a bit of a reputation for being rather too wild. With her favourite sister, Victoria Melita, she would go riding for hours over the island and picnic under the Mediterranean sun. It sounds like absolute bliss. However, all good things had to come to an end, and after three years they were on the move again, this time to Coburg, where Alfred was due to inherit the duchy that had been long promised to him. His uncle was childless and in poor health, so it was considered right that the duke-in-waiting get some experience of the territory that he was about to inherit. Missy wasn't particularly happy in Coburg, largely thanks to an overbearing governess who sought to play the children off against each other for her own amusement, all the while charming the pants off their mother. 
This governess and her fiancé, Dr. Rolf, were determined to beat the Englishness out of their charges, turning them into obedient little German princesses. But Missy and her siblings were not to be bullied in this way, and fought back, seeing them off, persuading their father that they were telling the truth about their governess's abuses. She and Dr. Rolf did remain in the household, but never again were they able to bully the Edinburgh children. Although their mother was well-educated, Marie seemed curiously unwilling to give her daughters the same kind of intellectual upbringing that she had had. Marie considered her children to be rather dim, and did little to help them improve. She did, though, encourage regular outdoor exercise, and Missy's happiest memories of Malta and Coburg were off exploring the great outdoors. As she grew older, Missy's admirers multiplied, and she delighted in their attention, fully aware of the power that her beauty gave her. She had startling blue eyes, silky blonde hair, and a delicate, kindly face that were an instant attraction for young men around her. For all these admirers, however, it seemed inevitable that it would be George that would win her heart. As the second son of the Prince of Wales, he was unlikely to ever succeed to the throne, although of course he did, but it seemed to their fathers that this was a solid, sensible match. Their mothers, on the other hand, fervently disagreed. Princess Alexandra disapproved of the wild Edinburgh girls, as I have already said, and her hatred of Germans only added to her opposition. For her part, Marie had never gotten over the lack of respect that she had felt in England, and so was opposed to her children marrying British. When this combined with George's long, frequent absences while at sea, everything seemed to be against the match. The prince, though, was madly in love, and when his brother died in 1892, making him now a future king, it seemed the perfect time to formally propose marriage. Seeing this coming, Marie had ensured that her daughter had not seen George in over two years, making sure that their visits to England coincided with his postings at sea. So when George wrote to Missy, asking for her hand in marriage, reminding her of their happy days in Malta and that they were destined to marry, Missy did not accept. In a reply to George that was dictated to her by her mother, she said that he would always be her, quote, beloved chum, but, quote, he must not think that there was anything definite in the friendship that had sprung up between them at Malta. The refusal of the proposal caused something of a family rupture. Queen Victoria blamed George, saying that he had waited far too long before making his cousin an offer. The Prince of Wales blamed his brother and sister-in-law and refused to talk to them. His wife, Alexandra, of course, was not so secretly delighted. For Marie, however, this was only step one of her plan, for she hadn't just ensured that George's suit was rejected because she disapproved of him and his family. She actually had another man in mind for her eldest daughter, someone who would be sure to provide her daughter with a throne and please her Russian relations. The man she had in mind was Prince Ferdinand of Romania. Now, the first thing that you need to know about him is that he wasn't actually Romanian. No, like pretty much every ruler, it seems, in Central and Southern Europe at this time, he was actually German. A prince of, and I'm going to take a bit of a run-up for this, Hohenzollern Sigmaringen, a small German principality in southwestern Germany. Also, like all the royals of the age, he was mostly known to his family and friends by a nickname, Nando. He had been born in 1865, making him a decade older than Missy, 
and the most noticeable thing about him was he had big protruding ears that his parents tried and failed to conceal, making him a rather tricky subject for portraits for the rest of his life. As the second son of Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern-Sigmaringen and Princess Antonia of Portugal, you might have expected him to go into the military. But he was not well suited to such things, preferring to spend his time reading mostly about botany and theology. He seemed set for a nice, quiet life. But then, a tragedy in the Balkans changed his life forever. His uncle, King Carol I of Romania, had only one child who died in 1874 of scarlet fever. With seemingly no prospect of siring another heir, it became clear that the throne would have to pass the children of his brother, Prince Leopold. His eldest son, Prince Wilhelm, was initially tapped for the role, but he had no desire for his quiet life to be interrupted by the stresses and strains of kingship. Ferdinand didn't want the job any more than his brother, but while Wilhelm had the strength of character to refuse his uncle, Ferdinand did not. And so, in 1889, Ferdinand was officially named as the heir to the Romanian throne, and moved to the country that he would one day rule. Romanian history is usually reckoned to have started in 101 CE, when the Roman Emperor Trajan conquered a region called Dacia. The name Romania derives from the Latin Romanus, or citizen of Rome, which is what the Romans called their new province. Fast forward to the Middle Ages, and the place that we now call Romania was actually made up of three principalities, Transylvania in the west, Moldavia in the east, and Wallachia to the south. Threatened by more powerful neighbours and internal civil infighting, these Christian principalities held out their independence for a while, but were eventually swallowed up, with Moldavia and Wallachia falling to the Turks and Transylvania to the Hungarians. In 1600, the three territories were briefly reunited by Prince Michael the Brave, but this lasted barely a year before the status quo was resumed. For most of the early modern period, the three provinces were caught in the middle of the conflict between the crumbling Ottoman Empire and the resurgent Austrians and Russians, trapped between the forces of East and West. Its fertile soil and abundant mineral wealth made Moldavia and Wallachia a tempting target, with the two cut off from their Transylvanian ethnic brothers by the Carpathian Mountains. Following the Treaty of Paris in 1856, which followed the end of the Crimean War, the majority ethnic Romanians in Moldavia and Wallachia both voted for a unification under a single prince. This new principality was still nominally a Turkish vassal, but in reality it had a great deal of autonomy. The man tapped to rule these united provinces was an ethnic Romanian, the first to rule these regions for centuries. His rule though didn't last long, as scandal and an unpopular attempt at land reform led to a coup. For his replacement, the Romanians looked abroad, and as was the start of the time, they picked a German, Prince Charles of Hohenzollern-Sigmaringen, who became Prince Carol I of Romania, who, for ease of reference, I'll be calling Carol from now on. As the second son, Carol was a career army officer, who had good relations with the ruling family in Prussia. 
Unlike most of his Prussian military brethren, however, he was somewhat of a liberal by inclination. And so this combination of liberalism and military talent won him the position of Domnitor of Romania, basically king in all but name. The Romania that greeted Carol on his arrival was a far cry from his German homeland. Its Turkish rulers had allowed Romania to stagnate, falling decades behind its European neighbours. Its population was primarily made up of illiterate peasants, greedy, lazy aristocrats, and a military wholly inadequate to deal with the enemy at the gates. The treasury was empty, there were no railways or internal communications of any modern kind, and no real international allies. So yeah, a pretty tough gig for the 27-year-old. He immediately faced two massive problems. The first was from the Turks, who weren't exactly thrilled at the arrival of this foreign soldier of whom they had no say in appointing, and mass troops on the border. Knowing that any military engagement would end in inevitable defeat, Carroll used every bit of diplomatic cunning and charm he could muster to assuage his Ottoman quote-unquote overlords. The other issue he faced was over Transylvania. The Principality had been formally absorbed into the new Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1865, and its rulers began a period of intense ethnic and religious persecutions against the Romanians in Transylvania. Carol was therefore put under a lot of pressure to do something to help the oppressed Transylvanians, but with such a weak military and economy, there was little he could do. One of his first actions was to sign into law a new constitution for Romania, one of the most liberal of its day, guaranteeing freedom of speech and the press, as well as guaranteeing private property and separation of powers. It set the monarch's powers as being constitutionally limited to being commander-in-chief of the army and sharing legislative power with the two houses of parliament, the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies. He spent most of the next decade on a modernisation drive that almost saw him deposed, but in the end paid off, as they came out victorious in the Romanian War of Independence, teaming up with the Russians to beat the Turks. The Treaty of Berlin that followed the war granted independence to Romania, but with a pretty big caveat. It had to give up one of its richest provinces to Russia in exchange for some arid desert, albeit one that bordered the Black Sea. This alienated Romania from its former ally. Even so, in 1881, the Kingdom of Romania was officially proclaimed, with Carol using at his coronation the steel crown, which had been forged from a melted-down Ottoman cannon that had been captured by the Romanian army during the war. Following this, Carol focused on three main priorities. The first was to stimulate the economy, which he did through a talented prime minister, whose name I won't trouble you with, who built up a new economic model based on the up-and-coming middle classes. The second was to try and gain Romania some new foreign friends now that he had turned against the Russians. His inclination, of course, was to court the Germans, leading to a secret treaty being signed with Germany, Austria, Hungary and Italy. This treaty protected Romania from any foreign aggressor, while only being required to declare war if the aggressor was Russia or Serbia against their allies. This, of course, put Carol at odds with most Romanian politicians who wanted him to side against Austria-Hungary so that they could finally take back Transylvania and create a truly united Romania. Luckily for Carol, the lawmakers didn't know about the treaty. The only copy lay in a safe in his own summer house, and not even the Foreign Office had a copy. 
And then, of course, his third priority was the succession, which brings us back to Ferdinand. Carol's marriage to Elizabeth of Vide had not been a happy one. Elizabeth was a writer and a bit of a dreamer, and therefore entirely unsuited to the cold, calculating Carol. They only had one child, a daughter who died at the age of three, which further estranged the couple. The straw that broke the camel's back, though, came in 1881, when Ferdinand first arrived in Romania to take up his position of heir to his uncle's throne. With no friends, Ferdinand spent most of his time with the king and queen, and while Carol spent his time drilling his heir in his duties and responsibilities, Elizabeth was rather more friendly, introducing him to her ladies. He became particularly attached to one Yelena Vacaresco, a convivial and witty writer who won Ferdinand's heart. He proposed marriage to her, but the Romanian constitution banned the heir to the throne from marrying a Romanian. Following centuries of infighting within their own aristocracy, Romania had invited foreign rulership to avoid any Romanian family from rising above the others. Carol was furious when he found out, and forced Ferdinand to break off the engagement and exiled his wife from Romania in punishment for her role in the affair. This meant that Ferdinand had to find himself a new fiancé, and he embarked on a European tour with a list of eligible single princesses in hand to find a wife. And so, finally, we swing all the way back to Missy. She was near the top of Ferdinand's list, and he was in contact with Missy's mother Marie, who managed to arrange a meeting. Not that she told her daughter, of course. It was traditional in these sorts of occasions for the whole thing to appear natural and by chance. In her autobiography, Missy describes their first meeting thusly. Quote, He was a good-looking, shy young man who tried to overcome his timidity by laughing. He spoke no English, was evidently very pleased to be in Germany again, and told us nothing about Romania, nor did I ask him any questions as to that far-off country, being rather vague about his place on the map. I liked this unpretentious young prince, who went out of his way to be amiable to us. Ferdinand was immediately enchanted by Missy, and knew that she was the woman for him. He told his parents to act fast to make the match happen. Quote, Quick action has to take place before someone else engages her. Better today than tomorrow. Marie was, of course, all in favour of this, but wanted the couple to get to know each other a little better before giving her full blessing. Therefore, she arranged for her daughter to be in Munich that spring while Ferdinand was there, and the two quickly developed a strong rapport. This wasn't the stereotypical match of the blushing princess and the handsome strong prince. For his part, Ferdinand was almost painfully bashful and meek, while Missy was quite naive to the ways of the world, having lived a very sheltered life to that point. He, as Missy said, didn't speak any English, so they conversed in German. Missy later wrote, quote, The young prince was excruciatingly shy and laughed more than ever to mask his timidity. Curiously enough, it was his extraordinary timidity which attracted me most. There was something so young, so suppressedly eager and just a little helpless about him. It gave you a longing to put him at ease, to make him comfortable. It aroused your motherly feelings In fact, you wanted to help him. I was much too young myself to have any positive conception of things. Besides, our education had been according to the ideas of those times. 
We have been kept inglorious, but I cannot help considering dangerous and almost cruel ignorance of all realities. In fact, our education had been based upon nothing but illusions and delusions and a completely false conception of life. There was perhaps a serenity about it, which the girls of today will never know. A sort of stupid happiness. Before that, it was cruel. Yes, cruel is the only word which really describes it. It was a sort of trapping of innocence, a deliberate blinding against life, as it truly is, so that with shut eyes and perfect confidence, we would have advanced towards any fate. But we were both young, and there was love in the air. The engagement soon followed. Ferdinand was so shy that he had to be coached the whole way through it by Missy's cousin, Princess Charlotte of Saxe-Meningen. Quote, it was, I believe, Charlie who actually led the timid prince up to the crucial moment. How he ever had the courage to propose is today still a mystery to me. But he did, and I accepted. I just said yes, as though it had been quite a natural and simple word to say. Yes. And with that yes, I sealed my fate. Delighted in her victory, Missy's mother telegrammed half of Europe with the news of her daughter's engagement. Queen Victoria was predictably rather upset, writing to one of her granddaughters, quote, We have been much startled to hear of Missy's engagement to Ferdinand of Romania. He is nice, I believe, and the parents are charming, but the country is very insecure, and the immorality of the society in Bucharest, quite awful. My favourite reaction, though, came from Lady Geraldine Somerset, who wrote, quote, disgusted to see the announcement of the marriage of poor, pretty, nice Marie of Edinburgh to the Prince of Romania. It does seem too cruel a shame to cart that nice, pretty girl to semi-barbaric Romania, and a marriage to the knowledge of all Europe, desperately in love with another woman. The first duty, after their engagement, was to meet the parents. First up was Missy, who was introduced to her soon-to-be-in-laws, Prince Leopold and Princess Antonia, along with Prince Carol, in Sigmaringen. She wasn't particularly taken with Antonia, calling her, quote, interesting, if not altogether lovable, living in a small circle of rules, prejudices and conventions, which she considered perfection. Leopold, on the other hand, was much more her kind of person, calling him charming, clever and cultivated, and saying that, quote, I have never met a more unselfish man. However, in many ways, the more important introduction was to her uncle-in-law, King Carol. You might have expected this 16-year-old innocent princess to be rather intimidated by the austere soldier king. But actually, she was rather disappointed with him, writing that, quote, King Carol was short of stature, and, at first sight, not at all impressive, except for his self-assured, decided, and at the same time dignified attitude and his roaming, all-seeing, rather small and often bloodshot blue eyes. Unlike his almost nervously amiable brother, he was almost exaggeratedly calm and self-contained. His movements were slow and deliberate, with a sort of conscious majesty which had become his usual attitude. The movements of a man who, having himself completely under control, can also control and master others. But for all that, he did not at all come up to my young expectations. He looked severe, but in no wise imposing. In fact, he was a disappointment. Next came Ferdinand's turn, 
as he travelled with Missy and her mother to England to meet her father and grandmother. Missy was very apprehensive about the whole thing, later recalling that, quote, All the time I had a sad little feeling underlying my newfound happiness, the feeling that Papa would be disappointed, and perhaps others as well. My betrothed was a complete foreigner, and therefore quite foreign to that life that was once mine. Despite her concerns about the match, Queen Victoria was quite warm and courteous to Ferdinand, speaking to him in German and letting him off a few gaffes caused by his inexperience. Missy's father made little comment on his soon-to-be son-in-law, instead focusing on all the practicalities of the wedding day itself. The wedding negotiations were actually rather complex for two main reasons. The first was difference in religion. Ferdinand was Roman Catholic, while Missy was Anglican. This meant that Missy had to be written out of the lines of succession to the British throne, though not that she had any prospect of having that thrust upon her, thanks to her legion of elder cousins. It also meant that she couldn't be married at Windsor, like most of her other relations. The other issue was the enmity between Queen Victoria and her mother, Marie. There was a mighty tug-of-war over locations, before, finally, an agreement was reached that they should marry at Sigmaringen Castle, the historic home of the Hohenzollern royal family. As one might expect for such a union, the guest list for this wedding was star-studded. The main attraction there was Kaiser Wilhelm. Now, as you know, I never lose an opportunity to take a pop at the Kaiser, but this time I don't have to, because Missy is going to do it for me. Quote, The Kaiser came, according to custom, accompanied by an embarrassingly numerous suite, composed of embarrassingly huge gentlemen in blazing uniforms. All things pertaining to the Kaiser were large, loud, and showy. He liked to assume the attitudes of a tyrant or despot. He never forgot or let you forget that he was first. His followers were enormous, and many of them extremely handsome. William changed his uniform several times a day as a smart woman changes her gown. The wedding day itself, the 20th of January 1893, was an absolute marathon, as it involved three, yes, three ceremonies, all of which took place in the morning. Luckily, Missy wasn't required to change dresses for each occasion. She wasn't the Kaiser. Her dress was of heavy white silk, with puffed sleeves, embroidered with pearls, crystals and sequins. In a break from tradition, she eschewed a lace veil in favour of a tulle, held in place by a diamond tiara. The biggest ceremony of the day was the Catholic one. It took place in a church next to the castle, and was, as Catholic services are wont, lengthy and solemn. The Anglican one, by contrast, was quite brief, and no one seems to remember much of the civil one at all. The whole day passed in a sort of day's blur for Mercy, and before she knew it, she was whisked off for her honeymoon at a hunting lodge nearby. She later described it as, quote, a dear old little house, more picturesque than comfortable, but quite a romantic setting for a honeymoon. But it was winter, we were shy and still strangers to each other, and there was absolutely nothing to do. Missy had been married in a fairy tale castle to a lovely foreign prince. It's pretty much the dream, no? But no, she was actually left cold and disappointed in her new husband. She reflected, quote, 
Nando was not a man of high spirits, nor was he imaginative, so he was quite at a loss how to entertain so childishly young a wife. He was terribly, almost cruelly in love. In my immature way, I tried to respond to his passion, but I hungered and thirsted for something more. Besides, I cruelly missed Mama and Ducky, that was her nickname for her sister Victoria Melita, and felt lost and forsaken. I must confess that those winter days, buried away in that little far-off little castle, were terribly long. There was an empty feeling about it all. I seemed to be waiting for something that did not come. Before she set off for Romania, there were a few final days in Coburg with her family and friends. Missy was very emotional, laughing and crying with those she loved, but her mother wasn't into that sort of thing. As I said before, she was the stiff upper lip sort of parent. No crying, just a simple, dignified goodbye. When thinking back on her wedding, Missy later reflected, quote, The moments in life when one has to take absolute decisions have something grim about them. It means clenching your teeth and setting your face towards that which you have chosen, for better or worse, with no looking back or side alleviations. But there are certain heartstrings that ache for all one's courage. So it was with me. I had cast my lot in with a stranger. I was setting out upon an unknown sea, burning my boats behind me, quitting the old harbour for a new one of which I knew nothing and that at the age of 16. And it is here, with Missy about to board a train to Romania, that I will leave you for this week. Next time, Missy arrives in her new country as Crown Princess of Romania, where she will find a very different reception and be expected to live a very different life than the one to which she had become accustomed. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.